Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. This episode is part two of our conversation with Akio Tanaka, co-founder and partner at Headline VC, a technology-focused VC firm headquartered in Tokyo, Japan, with investment teams deployed in Beijing, Taipei, San Francisco, Berlin, Paris, and Sao Paulo. This is the second half of our discussion, and it focuses more on the startup and investment landscape in Asia. We look at how business guarantees were detrimental to the growth of the startup culture in Japan, the emergence of female founders in Japan, deal structure in Japan, and why Akio prefers to invest in companies who have shared equity among co-founders on the cap table, a nuanced discussion around blockchain and gaming, and why gaming may actually be the catalyst to the second wave of crypto. We also discuss institutional barriers to expansion in Asia compared to that of Europe. Enjoy. When I tried to set up a meeting with my American colleagues or American companies, at least outside of the crypto field, in the traditional internet businesses, they use just technology called email to set up meetings. Going back and forth to set up a time for a meeting of email is incredibly inefficient unless you use tools like Calendly, but most people still use just traditional email negotiation to find the time. Typically speaking, by the time I set up a meeting with the American or European companies or colleagues, I've already finished the meeting with Asian contacts. And in fact, we've already made a decision on something. And sometimes if it's a quick decision that doesn't require a physical meeting, we just debate within the chat group and uh, make a decision. So at least the communication and decision-making cycle is far quicker in Asia than the rest of the world. And China, of course, I think is the fastest because of the whole WeChat culture. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Akio, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Uh, glad to be back here. You have moved. Uh, you have. You, yes. you are now in, in a different location. So put yourself on the map for everybody. Yeah. So right now I'm actually in Singapore, and you, you know there's this famous hotel here, Marina Sands, where they have the infinity pool. Mm-hmm. So I'm basically sitting about 20 floors below that infinity pool yeah. right now. Yeah. For those who, who aren't even familiar, think of a surfboard on top of three buildings. That's that's the Marina Bay Sands in, in Singapore. Uh, it's kind of a bucket list uh, hotel, I think, for a lot of people, you know, some places yes. in Dubai and Moscow and stuff. But that's yeah. that's definitely one of them for sure. I must say it's very touristy, but probably worth at least a uh, visit once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so continuing the conversation, and we left off talking about uh, KK Box, and now we want to move into kind of the investment, um, your thoughts, your thesis, mm. uh, the investment landscape over in APAC. So someone who invests in early stage, Asia-based uh, internet companies, 
what are a few of those characteristics that you're looking for in founders and startups? And I know that we covered a little bit of this. You know, I know that the your love of deep tech or, or strong tech is going to come out, but let's just cover that off, start anew. What are you looking for in founders and startups that you invest in? So I think I may have mentioned this earlier, but um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think the reason where we are excited about investing into the internet sector, which is where we spend pretty much all of our time, is that uh, we are in one of the very few investment categories where pretty much a lot of physical limitations of traditional businesses don't exist, especially uh, when we focus on things like software, right? And uh, actually, there used to be an, a, a physical constraint, constraint way back when my during my Macromedia Adobe days, we used to ship software in physical CDs and DVDs. So there were some constraints. But today, uh, when we invest in software in the industry uh, over the internet, basically, you can scale as fast as the market requires you to scale. And there are very few constraints for something, some idea that comes out of nowhere, suddenly becoming a massive hit. Now, but in order to do this, there's a couple of, I think, important um, elements. First, this kind of scalable software doesn't come from just anyone, right? Uh, It probably won't come from me. It has to come from a great engineer, uh, someone who can actually build uh, a system that could ultimately scale to a very massive scale. And uh, I'm all constantly looking for the next technical founder, uh, typically an engineering uh, a person with an engineer engineering background, who can dream up of something uh, uh, that could potentially scale and become you know something all of us use every day. Now, <clears throat> the important I think thinking here is that when you look at globally, uh, whether it's in U.S. or China, you know. Most of the great large tech companies are founded by engineers. We are just talking about uh, Zoom and Agora during this call, and both of them are uh, founded by the technical founder. And even if you look at like Adobe, where I came from, the founders were actually you know uh, PhDs who came up with a very early imaging algorithm. Was Microsoft the same? You know, Apple, they're a legendary company founded by two engineers. And even Facebook and uh, Zuckerberg could, could code, right? So, and, and when you slide to China, with the exception of Alibaba, because, you know, Jack Ma was high school English teacher, but if you look at Xiaomi, you know, Lei Jun was a great engineer. And, you know, uh, Baidu, Tencent, all the other big um, uh, Chinese companies were actually technical founders. So, uh, and, 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 and KKBox too. Uh, the founders are engineers. So what I'm actually, uh, personal bias is that I prefer betting on an engineer who can dream up a system. And uh, of course, many times the systems that engineers dream up don't have the market or is not a, uh, you know, uh, 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 always a constant hit. However, when people are making systems and if they're good at it, Sometimes they'll make a hit. Like think about the founder of ByteDance, the maker of TikTok. He had like two or three failed startups before he hit up on building the news app. And then, of course, they made a huge uh, uh, leap when they um, um, started making the short video uh, social network app. But uh, again, this comes from a guy 
who has a very strong product engineering mind. So I think that's, uh, and it's always been my uh, uh, thesis to, to fall, find and follow those founders. Now, in the last 10 years, though, I have actually made one adjustment. This was I, I did, I, an aspect that I didn't think about in my younger days, which is that I, I used to think if you're just better than the great engineer, nothing else mattered. It was very uh, uh uh, simplistic view of the world. And lately I figured out, well, okay, you need to have a great engineer. That person still needs to have a somewhat of a great uh, uh, people skills because at the end of the day, it's not a one-man shop. You're building a company. So great engineer with horrible people skill will have difficult time building a team around him or around her. So I think that uh, might be one uh, discovery that I have made in the last 10 years. Maybe it's not a great discovery for most people, but for me, that was kind of a, 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 something that kind of dawned upon me in the last maybe five, six years, more and more so. I have to refrain myself from from leaning in on, on that conversation. That is something that I could definitely spend an hour uh, talking about. I I do typically like somebody who understands I don't know the the psychology of 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 social the psychology of of mm. the market. I also love to one of the things that I always love is is running into a historian of the space, and mm. you know it kind of leans right in on the the you know the hard thing about hard things and and Ben Horowitz's first interview with Mark Andreessen six hours of. Yeah. The history of the internet. He comes home, his wife's like, you know, how'd it go? And he's like, I really have no idea. We sat for hours talking about the history of the internet. <laughs> I'm not really sure if that was a job interview or, you know, or it was just like a book club. So we could get into that, but I, I, I want to, you know, tie that in. So those things that you're looking for in the geographical market that you're in, how is that? I, I, I'm guessing that you're finding a ton of amazing tech talent, but how are you? able to now are you able to find that same global people skill awareness of both market and and the ability to to understand the talent on the team and and, and work with them as well yeah it's actually not as easy in asia i think in the us because it's a melting pot of all those global talents pouring into great american universities and it's, i think it's easier to find and it's definitely not to the same extent. So we have some challenges in Asia. A, uh, this is actually, I found this is a less of a challenge in markets like uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, where the, these are cities in Asia that are generally speaking very international and, and it does attract global talents. But if you go to places like Japan and China, the local talents don't really speak good English with the exceptions of those people who studied overseas and come back. So the the, the problem you run into those markets that uh, you have uh, very domestically focused founders. Now, mind you, China is, is a big market, so you can still build <laughs> massive unicorns just out of domestic market. And, uh, you know, same in Japan. It's not quite as big as China, but still the third largest economy in the world. So you can still build a decent sized business. But... That doesn't become, you know, Twitter. That doesn't become Google because you're still domestically focused, right? So Baidu can never exceed Google to the, in, in terms of their reach because the, they did an international product, but, you know, it was very 
half-baked and uh, uh, really the whole company culture is very domestic. So they can create a great domestically focused product, but that, that doesn't become a platform for the humanity. So I think that's definitely a challenge, finding uh, internationally minded founders. Now, <clears throat> KKBox founders are uh, uh, a little bit uh, uh, privileged because both of them actually were educated in the U.S. They're actually... Um, uh, Stanford and um, um, where did Chris go? Berkeley founders. So they they had actually uh, a good uh, uh, international mindset, but uh, that's not always the case when you're in, in Asia. Yeah, no, it's it's not. I have one other little question of my own here, um, just mm. on failure. And yes. you know, let's talk about like education. Let's talk the the multi time founder. Is that a, is that something that you like and appreciate? Um, you know, is you get an amazing, amazing technical founder, but if they've never done a startup before, does that give you pause or are you going to be able to jump in and maybe help them out with that um, aspect? Yeah. <laughs> uh, is that an education you're willing to pay for given the strength? If it's, if it's all there yeah. um, and, and you know, what, what we, this, this uh, predisposition towards, I think what the West believes the East appetite for admitting failure is. So I'll let you run with that. That's an interesting point. So this is actually definitely a major issue for Japan where failure often comes with, you know, almost like a lifetime of stigma. <laughs> and, and actually until very recently, uh, so finally the government stepped in and put some pressure on the banking sector, but in the, in the, until like not, like very recently, like in the last five, seven years, it was very common for some startup fund, a venture founder to fail and then need to be, uh, then we will become personally bankrupt and, uh, and is banned from say serving as an officer of a public company and just whole mess. So in, in Japan, <clears throat> until recently, it was possible for you to have a startup and fail. And you're not only failing as a startup, but failing in life and comes with all the other negative stuff you can imagine. But, and, and partly because banks actually required guarantees for loans to startups. VCs don't, right? But the, uh, of course, often startups need to have a mixture of venture uh, capital money plus some uh, uh, debt or line of credit from banks in the West, in most most at least in a lot of other countries that are operating, usually don't come with a, a personal guarantee. It's just, you know, business is the guarantee. And of course, when the business fails, that's the risk banks take. But in Japan, no, no, no. If, if I'm the founder, say, doing something, I need to like uh, get a half a million dollar loan from a bank. Oh, Akio, I need you to, uh, you know, uh, pledge your home and maybe I need your parents to co-guarantee the loan. And those things happen. And of, and of course, it has actually ruined uh, many people's lives. And of, you know, when you have that, it's hard to take a risk, right? Because you not only it could be ruining your life or maybe your parents, your friends. And, and uh, so that, but that has uh, recently been removed because the government realized it's detrimental to the growth of startup culture in Japan. We do actually have, uh, because this is a serious issue in Japan, we have a separate uh, seed fund for the Japanese market where we write smaller checks, like um, 100K, 200K, instead of like, you know, 
million, three million, five million dollar check. So this is exactly meant for that sector. So we do back mm. first time founders with very little they uh, uh, venture experience, and uh, and we also back um, like a middle aged founder, right? People who come out of some big Japanese company, but uh, with some specific vertical domain knowledge. Yeah, but never done a venture before. Um, and uh, plunging into this world, and we also back those founders. Yeah, there's and an unfair advantage more, there. Yeah, and more increasingly, um, at least for 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 Japan standard, we are also starting to see uh, female founders in Japan uh, emerging. That wasn't the case 15 years ago. It was very hard to find any female uh, venture founders in Japan, but today uh, it's becoming less you know uh, less uncommon. Still not common, but it's, it's definitely less uncommon. Can I ask you one more question about the structure of deals? If it's, yes. if it's the same, great. Um, if it is different, if it's nuanced, given and, and speaking specifically to the APAC region. Um, sure. What, what could we know and what could we tell our audience about how things are actually structured, negotiated, put together differently? Um, and then on the back of that, if we remember, I, I do want to come out and say, you know, down the road, what does a liquidity event look like over there? Is it the same as over here? In terms of the deal structure and the instruments we use in Asia, it's somewhat similar to, you know, what's prevalent in the U.S. And um, we have, you know, we have the similar concept in term sheets. However, I do find it's not across Asia, but some parts of Asia, maybe this is more common in China and Japan. With I think that uh, uh, in Asia, I think there's two groups. I think that take too much on the cap table, and I think it would be maybe better served uh, uh, shared more uh, uh, equitably. And one is angel investors, specialty size fund in Japan. I think there are angels, but sometimes I've seen a company before they even come to Series A. Half the over half the companies owned by those external angels. Uh, they call them angels, but when they have mm. so much space in the cap table so early in the, in, in, in the company's life cycle, they don't look like angels to it's me, actually. An angel, yeah. <laughs> it's very devilish because they're not only harming the uh, uh, company's ability to raise money, but, you know, like uh, uh, employees and management should have more stake in the company that early because they still have a whole... Uh, lifetime ahead of fundraising and so on. So I think uh, maybe it's because uh, the founders are not as knowledgeable about negotiating those deals early on and some angels are maybe taking advantage of it. So I think it's uh, uh, something, um, uh, hopefully, you know, uh, uh, this will change over time, but it's still the case today. And the the second aspect, I think that's different is that uh, I have found uh, in, uh, not always, but this is a, a, a generally speaking, I think in markets like U.S., the founders share more of the cap table with the other co-founders and employees. And so, and so one, 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 for, for example, generally speaking, in U.S., it's very common for option pool to be around 20%. In Japan, 10% is more than all. So, uh, small option pool. And, uh, 
it's I have seen many cases where uh, at, at the time of IPO, founders in Japan, some of them hold like uh, 60, 70% uh, uh, equity stake in the company, which is unheard of in the US. Now, one interesting thought that I, uh, I learned um, when I was talking to Y Combinator um, uh, founders way back, maybe about uh, eight years ago, is that uh, uh, I asked them, what is an ideal situation for the, uh, the, the initial team, right? And uh, they said uh, they were examining their applicants uh, and uh, looking for some common traits among uh, more successful cases. And they have found it was always better to have co-founders that have more or less equal equity stake. In, in the company. Let's just say if you have one guy who owns like 90% of the stock and the three other co-founders who have 10%, they said the issue with this is that uh, startups are likely to have a lot of problems and um, uh, 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 issues as they grow, as they try to find, you know, product market fit. And when you have people, one person having so much stake and others having almost no stake, People with no stake, basically, there's a very low cost of leaving that situation. So meaning teams will likely fall apart during the hardship and that uh, people don't pull the same weight because the other three people think, hey, we have so little. If this fails, it's okay. I'll just go to another, go to another startup. So they found having a two, two, three, you know, at least two, two co-founders who have similar stake it doesn't mean, need to be the same, but similar significant stake will make a much fairer company now. So they've been encouraging that, and uh, that's exactly what we don't see in Asia as often. <laughs> so it's sort of like we see this one man takes all kind of company culture is very popular still in Asia, and and I'm often questioning if it's the right way. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of 50-50. I've seen that run into yeah. some stalemates. It actually propagates further problems without a clear delineation in power. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I want to move on and talk a little bit about private public markets, maybe a little bit more about private, but you know, both of them have have had a pretty tumultuous past 12 months. Both, you know, looking at stock prices, uh, looking at valuations, the ability to raise money, the availability of, of capital. I'm wondering if you could just talk to me a little bit about what that storm and landscape over the last 12 months, what's that, what's that looked like to you? It's not just last 12 months. I think since the beginning of COVID, the whole market kind of became kind of bizarre world, right? Yeah. Um, when the world economy was uh, tanking and most of the population of the world were trapped at home, economic activities plummeted, but somehow stock market kept going in the other direction. And uh, venture capital also kept pouring money. And I think there was definitely a sense of crazy bubble that was being developed. And some of it, it didn't even make sense for people, even for people like me, who is generally optimistic about future of technology, right? And, and I always think that, that there's more value being created. But even for some, someone who's super optimistic like me, uh, the market condition at the time seemed a little bit uh, like, yeah, we're in some bizarre world. Now, of course, strange situations could last a short period of time, but usually don't last forever. And I think <clears throat> we got a, 
a little bit of wake up call this year. But but also this wake up call didn't just come from uh, simple market correction. I think it got coincided with a couple of uh, big events like like uh, Ukraine Russia situation, which created a huge inflationary pressure on the, on the the uh, the rest of the world with you know, energy prices, food prices. And uh, also issues with logistics. And I think all those things actually made the market turmoil much worse because we, we could have just had a smaller level of correction than just kept partying on. Kept partying on. Well, we were in a trade war even before that, which had already oh, yeah, yeah. So, disrupted supply chains. And- yes, yes. China-U.S. trade war also was another uh, 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 kink in the armor. <laughs> all those little things, I think, well, not little things, all those big things finally, I think, hit the market and people realize, hey, we've been partying, but uh, look at all those problems we have. <laughs> and suddenly gas prices were at levels never seen before. And that, that's when I think consumers in the US generally wake up. <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, so I think uh, 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 the current market correction, given all the macro environment was inevitable. Now, does that make me uh, less optimistic about the future? Well, uh, for short-term exit in the market, yes. I mean, if you're trying to go IPO right now, yeah, I would be less optimistic about it. But but having said that, during this time, we had an incredible uh, development um, in new areas. And I think, um, you know, we are heavily invested in e-commerce logistics space. And because of all the pressure on logistics, a lot of innovations happened during that space. And in fact, a lot of uh, our portfolios in that space grew very well in the last two years, despite the logistics challenge. And then, you know, uh, this whole blockchain blockchain industry, we also, we also have a separate crypto fund that invests into that space. And yes, I think a lot of people were thinking about, you know, the recent collapse of, um, you know, crypto platforms you know, prices and people are talking about crypto winter, but I'm actually uh, seeing an incredible uh, 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 potential here. And the silver lining, I think, uh, for example, I think exists for uh, uh, gaming industry, which is one of the segments our uh, uh, crypto investment team is focused on. Uh, Todd, I want to share one interesting news. So last year, something like, $3 $3 billion worth of venture investment went into crypto gaming, blockchain games. And uh, uh, and uh, this year, in this winter year, uh, already in the first uh, uh, two quarters, that amount got exceeded. So meaning uh, in just in six months this year, there's even more capital being deployed into blockchain gaming by VCs. And what's incredible for me is that that, that amount actually exceeded venture investment into non-blockchain gaming. So now, blockchain gaming last year was a novelty. This year is now mainstream from the investment point of view. But of course, there's a delay between when we invest and the products come out and people in the market feel it. So we think maybe next uh, six months, 12 months, you know, maybe 12 to 24 months, some of those investment will hit the market. And I think uh, uh, this, we are now going through a very transformative period of you know new things being developed now. And this is not a, a new concept. Like when you think about some of the big names in crypto today, 
like uh, Solana and Polygon, those things were, you know, uh, products of the last crypto winter. These are, these are the guys who got, you know, funded in the last winter cycle and uh, they've been struggling for self, uh, or, and, and, but developing under the radar for most, most people for the last couple of years. And finally, you know, uh, the fruits of labor, uh, 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 came out in, I think in the last 12 to 18 months in a big way now has, you know, is, is now two of the big, uh, platforms that emerged out of the, uh, the last cycle. But this time, there's more of that investments going on. So I think while, you know, market is down, developers are still building. And uh, I think that's what's incredible about the uh, cycle we're in today. And uh, because we're early stage guys, we care more about new things being developed than, say, just the market uh, exit. Yeah, cycle. macro stuff you really can't predict or control. You might as well, if you can't, then might as well do something more fun, uh, like early stage. Yeah. Can you just real briefly for the audience, not for me at all, because I totally understand this. Um, just kidding. Uh, blockchain gaming, just real quick. What does that mean? It's it's actually, it's uh, yeah, I should, I should qualify. So it's not like people are playing games on the blockchain, on chain. That's not the case. But uh, when, I, when I talk about blockchain gaming, we, I'm generally talking about a field called gamify. It's kind of intersection between... Uh, uh, blockchain finance and gaming and um, uh, in a simplistic world word uh, it's like uh, gaming industry was actually inherently very very uh, 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 I think uh, similar to what blockchain industry is doing but they didn't have the right underlying technology and uh, I don't know Todd, I think you, uh, you all seem old enough to remember uh, the, the beginning of like uh, World of Warcraft, all oh, the yeah. PC gaming boom that came, right? Yes, so, I was a huge yeah, fan think about, number one. Yeah, so, wow. So think about these uh, PC games. So you know that showed up in our earlier lifetime. Uh, that uh, when you play those games, first of all, you set up an account, right? Obviously, an account today in blockchain game is your wallet. That's where you put your stuff, right? And then uh, when you in in the old days, when you buy when you play games, you know. Uh, you, you have to buy items like weapons and whatever so that uh, you can beat the other guys. So in the old days, these are just random items that the game developers created within the game. But today, those weapons and in-game items have become NFTs. So in blockchain gaming, all the ga- things you use within the game, and now whether it's land or, or some vehicle or spaceship or special weapons, or character, all those little items that was in, was in the game ecosystem have become NFTs. And in the old days, when you play games, you earn like uh, in Warcraft, like gold. And the gold has now become tokens. So what's all this? So basically, a lot of the traditional gaming concepts are actually very applicable to the blockchain technology. But, so, but the innovation comes uh, when those uh, items suddenly becomes part of the uh, uh, public blockchain, and then you can start trading. Now, trading did happen way back. I, uh, I remember like, you know, people playing uh, Warcraft, they used to sell their accounts on eBay, even though it was, you know, not allowed by the, uh, <laughs> the yeah. developers, yeah. but people did, right? Except today that we have big places like OpenSea where you can actually trade those items. 
freely. So what has happened was that I think blockchain technology has freed up what used to be trapped inside game, outside of it, in a ways that actually we become real asset that users own. Now, it's good and bad from the game developer's point of view. A, because in the old days, game developers controlled everything right within their wall. But now it's opened up. It's like a difference between proprietary software and open software world. People need to embrace this new way of thinking in order to get there. Now, but from end user's point of view, it's actually very interesting because in the old days, doesn't no matter how much money I spend in the game, it's, the value is trapped or how much, doesn't matter mm-hmm. how much time I spent in the game, value is trapped in the game. But now yeah. I can extract it, trade it. And uh, I think it has created a very, very new way of thinking and um, uh, uh, economy around the gaming industry. And the gaming industry is still one of the largest entertainment industry in the world. It's, you know, it's bigger than the music industry. And uh, uh, so when you think about the, all of the value being tied to blockchain is, I think, is, is, is a massive opportunity. Now, uh, of course, f- I have this more evil investor hat than my evil investor hat says, this is actually incredible opportunity from a very different perspective. Um, previously, when we had crypto boom, it's actually a boom among a super minority of the internet. I don't think that the last cycle even touched 1% of the global internet population. It was basically among the elite internet users and uh, speculators, small, small, tiny, tiny minority of the internet population who played with crypto and created the bubble and the burst. Mm -hmm. But gaming is different. Gaming actually brings in masses. And we have seen this in Southeast Asia last year. But because gaming is far more accessible to everyday person, and uh, we we think it's actually not all the crypto finance game that's going to bring the next gen masses of users into blockchain, but it's actually gaming. So I'm, we're actually betting on this trade, partly because we think this is what's going to actually make crypto a mass phenomenon instead of a, you know, a, a playground yeah. for a minority of internet users. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think there's a lot of fascinating stuff there. I love what it does for creator economy. I love that it brings a lot of other yes. people into, and of course we see that with Roblox and all these kind of things where people can go, but it, there's, there's a, now, now you can, you can sell it. Uh, you're protected. Uh, your IP is protected or so con- uh, And there's a marketplace for it. Um, there's also identity protection and, and, and security. I think parents can start to feel safer as we move forward. Um, all the moderation that's going on as well, the security and, you know what, for, for those of you, uh, maybe folks that are my age or even maybe older that are listening and wonder how your, 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 your 18 year old kid just bought you a 57 Chevy for father's day and he has no money. And like you ask him how we got it. He said, well, I, I sold my league of legends account, uh, to, to get you a father's day gift. And then you'll, you'll, then you'll appreciate where this is potentially going. Uh, yes. because that time was then it was like, wow, that time was not wasted. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it can be pretty cool. Yeah, okay, exactly. but, but we and you and I are on a hard timeline, my friend. All right. So we have to, and there's other th- There's a few other things I want to get to, to, to talk to okay. you, but I could definitely keep going on this. Other companies you've observed, both inside and out of, of that APAC region, what do the companies that successfully grow in Asia markets do, do well 
and and maybe even what they're not doing that others are trying to do because they know that that is a a, a path wrought with failure. So I think, yeah, this is actually a very uh, interesting topic, um, especially when I contrast uh, Asia against EU, right? Uh, because we also have a separate European team investing in Europe. And uh, Europe and Asia has some similarities because both regions have so many countries. Some countries, I don't even know how to spell the names. <laughs> and and, and more, many languages and many systems. However, Europe decided... They're going to work together. They have now common currency and somewhat of common legal frameworks, but at least for businesses. So they have basically made it easier to do business across Europe. Now, same thing hasn't happened in Asia. So we have more barriers between countries and, and the currency fluctuations. We, there's no euro in, in Asia. So, so it's far more difficult to actually scale across Asia than say it is in in, uh, in Europe. So I think one of the challenge and and uh, uh, I think is to figure out how to grow across Asia. And uh, some companies have I think crossed that chasm, figured out how to do it. And some companies still keep struggling. Even for Chinese companies, which has done great job in China, uh, when they scale across Southeast Asia, they have run into issues. And I think. Um, the big part is that somehow, if you're the founder, you need to figure out, okay, what is the common thread? Usually it's technology uh, that they can basically keep it uniform across Asia so that you don't have to create separate product for each region. But figure out, okay, but what is the local element that I need? And, uh, you know, like then, then how do I actually find local leadership in each market? That's smart enough, and, and at least, or at least, as strong enough as the local competition, so that they can actually uh, gain market entry and 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 ultimately capture the market share. And that's, I, th I think, that's been incredibly hard. And uh, uh, even you know, if you look at uh, uh, people like uh, Gojek, uh, you know, they've done a good job, of course, in, in Indonesia, but some of the other markets they went to, went into, they struggled. And uh, it, it didn't really matter how much capital they raised; they still have issues. And sometimes it's uh, uh, beyond the founders' uh, uh, capabilities because it might be some legal or, or, or national agenda in specific market. They just don't let foreign com competition mm -hmm. in. Well, China is actually a big one, right? Pretty much yeah. everyone except Chinese company failed moving to China and build internet business because there is an institutional barrier, the political barrier. Yeah. So, I don't think they were ever going to let any other – they weren't going to let a non-Chinese company or even top three or five be the incumbent. And why should they? Yeah. Yeah. So so I think that's uh, uh, incredibly difficult. So but even if you remove China from equation, right, yep. they're still – like Japan is not close to the rest of the world. But still, companies outside of Japan struggle moving into Japan because there are other – cultural and the local business practice type barriers. So I think scaling across Asia is incredibly difficult compared to say scaling across Europe. Of course, it's not mm -hmm. easy scaling across Europe, but relatively speaking, it's, it's easier. And okay. most European people also speak English, right? So whereas that's not necessarily the case in Asia. So there's a lot of uh, barriers. So, so I think uh, what, what I'm looking for is that uh, 
uh, there's, I think there's two aspects, right? If you're trying to do something incredibly difficult, like fintech and cro- uh, 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 doing this across Asia, it's actually very tough. Some, some companies have done it. Actually, we have a couple of portfolios that's doing, uh, 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 fintech in multiple countries in Asia, but it's incredibly difficult. Just regulation so, and red tape. Yeah, exactly. And getting a license, you yeah. know, takes time, money, and sometimes relationships. And, uh, so, I actually think uh, the better, best, best approach in Asia is to actually focus on some layer of technology or software that's not regulation heavy, but still captures the needs of the the, the region and the market. And I think those players um, uh, tend to actually do well, scale better. And the one example is that we have a portfolio. That's based in uh, 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 Malaysia, KL. But actually, this is this is an expat team originally from Hong Kong. They left Hong Kong during the uh, um, Hong Kong uh, riot and early COVID days. And uh, but you know they make um, uh, uh, CRM uh, 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 customer relationship software for uh, chat infrastructure. So basically, instead of building your CRM around email or website. They built it around chat, so it supports WeChat, you know, WhatsApp, even exotic ones like Viber and uh, you know, and Line and so on. And uh, it's a basically a multi-platform CRM. And then it, again, they don't try to go into local regulation things, but you know, in Asia, people don't use email; we all on chat. So they actually focused on that specific technology layer. Uh, it turned out it's incredibly scalable. In fact, they have a global customer base, even though the team is sitting on KL. And I think that's the kind of, I think, maybe model that's relatively speaking easier to scale in Asia. And uh, again, it's a technology play, right? It's not regulation play. So what's your outlook on M&A activity over the next five and 10 years in Asia? In the last five years, I think Chinese companies actually spend a lot of money acquiring businesses in Asia. Now, I think there's now more uh, uh, foreign currency control again back in China. So I don't know how much of that will uh, continue, at least in, in a short period of time. Right now, it seems like it's less likely because their application to spend money, uh, you, you know, U.S. dollar in those acquisitions may not be approved that easily given the current uh, economic and political climate in China. However, we're actually seeing uh, uh, big U.S. tech companies coming into Asia. Uh, for example, um, uh, 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 PayPal made a, uh, you know, a multi-billion dollar acquisition um, buy now, pay later space in Japan. Um, you know, and Google also uh, uh, recently made... Um, uh, acquisition in um, uh, 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 mobile, like e-wallet type company in Japan. So these companies in the previous 10 years didn't make this kind of acquisition. They may have made a small one, but they didn't make a big bet in, in this space. So we think maybe the international acquisition is going to continue to grow. And and it's for, for a reason. Uh, not just Japan, but if you look at the rest of Asia, especially Southeast Asia, um, in uh, like over 10 years ago, if you look at the global market, China was a growth engine. That's where that's where the uh, double-digit growth existed when the 
the rest of the world was, you know, lower single digit economic growth. But China is no longer a double digit economic growth country anymore. They have actually uh, uh, come down to uh, mid or lower single digit economic growth mm-hmm. lately. Now, but where do we see double digit growth? It's actually Southeast Asia. So we think uh, the companies, uh, both regionally, like, you know, uh, within Asia and, and also outside of the Asia region, like US, I think those companies are interested in capturing this growth, you know, maybe initially with just pure minority investment, but when the market is closer to explosion, I think those people probably come and make a M&A. And I see more of the corporate uh, people from the U.S. companies spending time in Asia. Like I spend time with guys from Google and others mm. because they are actively looking. So we think that uh, M&A activities will probably likely to continue. As you bounce around. Same, mm. Go ahead if you want to finish, yeah. Oh, no, no. Oh, and that's just for American companies, Japanese companies as well. Mm. Uh, when I talk to most of the corp dev guys in Japan, they see the next growth coming out of Southeast Asia. So they want to bet on not just investment, but on also on potential M&A. Is the speed of business in Asia still triple that what it is anywhere else? Yes, I think <laughs> speed of business in Asia is incredibly faster. And um, actually, this goes back to the chat culture I just mentioned. So yeah. just to give you an example, when I tried to set up a meeting with my uh, American colleagues or American companies, uh, at least outside of the crypto field, in the traditional internet businesses, you know, they use just technology called email, email set up yeah. meetings. And, uh, you know, going back and forth, to set up a time for a meeting at email is incredibly inefficient unless you use tools like Calendly, but most people still use just traditional email negotiation to find mm-hmm. the time. Now, typically speaking, by the time I set up a meeting with the American or European companies or colleagues, I've already finished the meeting with Asian uh, contacts. And in fact, we've already made a decision on something. And same with uh, like board meetings. Uh, I have a several board chat groups, and sometimes if it's a, a, a quick decision that doesn't require a physical meeting, we just debate within the chat group and uh, make a decision. So, uh, you know, at least this communication and decision-making cycle is far quicker in Asia uh, than, uh, than the rest of the world. And China, of course, I think is the fastest because of the whole WeChat culture. I think they kind of started the trend, and I think the rest of Asia... We don't use WeChat outside of China, but still have the similar chat culture. Oh, I agree. I mean, every yeah. time I was coming up to uh, to run an 8 by 8 event at Tech Temple, I was always hitting you up on WeChat and getting her done that way. And you would connect with yeah, somebody. Yeah, it's faster. And <laughs> and you see, if you send me email, you've, you'll probably hear from me like a week yeah. later. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It's, it's very true. And, and I appreciate you calling that out. One last question. I want to just say, if you could talk just from a high level, how is AI helping you uh, finding deal flow at Headline Asia? This is a whole new topic on itself, but just to quickly, so we've been spending as Headline globally, we've been developing this um, AI-based uh, data mining tool for to cover the whole internet space. So it kind of sounds crazy, but we actually monitor all of the internet. But of course, there's so much stuff on the internet that's not investable by VCs. So we actually filter out about 7 million uh, entities on the internet that we consider VC investable. 
And we monitor that using about 196 different signals and data points. And uh, in terms of the volume of data we're handling today daily, it's about 250 terabytes of data. So what do we do with all this data? Well, we can actually find early trends. For example, in the past, we found WhatsApp as a uh, 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 fast-growing platform even before their first uh, investment from Sequoia. And we also found uh, uh, Musical.ly, which is a precursor to TikTok today. When they are just an iOS app, no Android, but our radar picked up. So we actually use technology to go beyond what humans are capable of finding. And uh, uh, so we have a globally, we have an investment team of, you know, 50 plus uh, investment team. And this 50, these, these people, including myself, we look at about 100,000 companies a year using this technology. So we, we use technology to basically augment uh, the power that we have as individuals. Obviously, I myself will never be able to follow that many companies unless we had the aid of um, technology. That's right. That's just kind of the way that it has to go um, in, in today, getting that amount of deal flow. And yeah, you, it's not going to be perfect, uh, but it's certainly going to help yes. uh, help a ton. Okay, that's great. So we are going to put a pin in it there. This has now been part two with Akio Tanaka, co-founder partner at Headline Asia. Akio, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Todd. Quick reminder for everybody listening on audio only that we do have the YouTube channel, the podcast, and the video uh, is all over there. You can see Akio and I over there. And if you're watching us on the video and you would like to do some other things with your hands and your eyes, feel free to go download the podcast, Google uh, Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere else that you get your podcasts. But thanks for listening and bye for now. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.